you doing this weekend? Great. It is uh, it's such a privilege to be with you guys, to have the opportunity to speak on the weekend. My name is Jeff Surratt, one of the teaching pastors at Seacoast. I want to say hi to those of you who are joining us from the chapel or maybe one of our other campuses. Maybe you're joining us from the internet. We are glad you are with us this weekend. We are kicking off a brand new series called One Prayer. This is the third year that we have been a part of the One Prayer series. It actually was started by our friends Life Church, who are based out of Oklahoma. And this year, there are almost 700,000 people today starting this series together. And, and the way it works is thousands of churches all over the world agree that for the month of June, we are going to all use the same theme and we're all going to be praying together. We're all going to be uh, uh, sharing together, teaching together. And the theme this year is unstoppable, unstoppable blank. So as we get started, if you had my opportunity to speak this year and you were going to kick off a series called Unstoppable, what word would you put with unstoppable? What concept comes to your mind? I want you to tell your neighbor real quick, unstoppable blank, unstoppable what? What would you say? Now, if you know me or you've heard me speak a few times, you probably know that whatever word you came up with, I'm probably going to do something a little bit different. It's just how I'm wired up. And, you know, honestly, as I was praying about what I should speak on this weekend, I've known for a couple of months now that I would be kicking off this series. The word that God brought to my mind very clearly is the word serving, unstoppable serving. I doubt that very many people chose that word, but I really think that it is one of, if not the most unstoppable forces in the universe is the force of being a servant, of serving. Now, before you tune out, I kind of know where some of you are coming from. Oh, great. We're going with a serving message this weekend. I know how this works. Seacoast needs some new volunteers. There's a bunch of sign-up sheets in the lobby. We're going to hear the sad story. They're going to bring a little kid up on stage. and There's no teacher for this child unless you sign up. Do you want this child to go to hell? (laughs) I hope that's not what this weekend is. In fact, there aren't any extra sign-up sheets in the lobby. We're not looking for new volunteers. And what I want to do, honestly, is share from my heart what I think is the core, the the essential understanding of what Christianity and what being a Christ follower is about and kind of unveil a little bit what that force, when we all get together and serve, what that can mean to our community, to our world. And I really had my eyes opened again about a month ago. There was a flood in Nashville. I don't know if you guys remember the flood. It happened the first weekend of May. It didn't get a lot of press coverage because it happened the same weekend that the BP oil spill was starting to be in the news and the same weekend of the Times Square bomber. And so it got pushed aside. But this was a catastrophic flood. What happened is a storm system parked over central Tennessee. And in two days, they received 13 inches of rain. Now, in the low country, that number isn't that significant, but it was twice the amount of rain that had ever fallen in Nashville in a two-day period. It caused what they called a 500-year flood. Thousands of homes were destroyed, and almost no one had flood insurance. It was a complete catastrophe. In fact, to give you a kind of a feel of what it was like in Nashville about a month ago, I want to show you a video that a church in Nashville created. Let's take a look at this. 
flood happened on a Sunday morning, uh, Saturday night and Sunday morning, and as the church realized the enormity of the flood as the water began to recede on Monday, they immediately mobilized. They didn't know what to do. They had never dealt with a flood before, but hundreds of volunteers just started showing up at the church, and they flooded into the community and just started going door to door, knocking on doors, asking how they could help. And what they found was was heartbreaking and amazing. They went into one house and, and their homeowners were just sitting in the middle of the floor in shock. They didn't know what to do. They had no insurance. They had lost everything. One house they came to, a, a lady was in the yard and she had full, pulled a, a, little, a few a little bit of his, her furniture out into the yard. And the furniture was destroyed, but she was taking baby wipes and trying to wipe the mud off the furniture because she didn't know what else to do. And so this church team sent a couple of ladies just to sit with her and wipe down her useless furniture while the rest of the team went in and began to prepare her house for what it would take to rebuild. Two weeks after the flood, Sherry and I went up to help the church with some uh, continued Um, uh, continued help that they were doing out in the community. We joined a team that went to a house that was two stories tall and no one had been to that house yet in two weeks. And we got there and the young homeowner was uh, just doing the best he could. And he had been trying to pull pull things out of his house, but he'd been working for two weeks. And the house, um, the water had come within five inches of the ceiling of the second story. And it had stayed there for two days. And so everything in the house was destroyed. We had never met this young man. We didn't know each other. It took about a five-minute lesson of what you do to strip a house after a flood. And then we just dove in. We pulled out all the furniture. We pulled out all the appliances, all the flooring. We took out every piece of sheetrock. And by the end of the day, the house was stripped down to its bare studs. And it was amazing to see both the look on the face of this young man who saw a team of 30 strangers just show up. And just because they loved Jesus, they wanted to serve and to help. And the other thing that I saw was the look on the face of the volunteers as we became a team, as we became a unit, as we came to help a young man we'd never met. And in it, we found meaning in our own lives. And I thought that weekend as I sat and I reflected on what we had experienced, I thought, how could I take that back to Seacoast? How can we experience this flood of serving, the power, the unstoppable force of just finding needs in our community without a catastrophic flood? How could we become an unstoppable force of serving? And as, as we look at serving, we, we look at the example of Jesus because Jesus is the one who teaches us how to serve. And it's in Jesus' name that we serve. And so how do we learn to serve like Jesus? Well, we look at his example. Um, Jesus is walking one day with his disciples. There's a, some extra people just kind of following along. And one of the people in the, in the group was the mother of two of the disciples. And so she calls Jesus aside and she calls her boys over and she says, Jesus, this, this is just between us. But uh, I'd like to kind of work a deal here. When you, when you set up your kingdom, we're, like, we're all... We're stoked about the kingdom, Jesus. Very cool. Can't wait for that deal. When you set it up, it would be really, really special. If Jimmy, uh, uh, little Jimmy could be on your left and little Johnny could be on your right, would that be okay? They could be like your your go-to guys. It'd be like your little posse, Jesus. You know, that would be awesome. And Jesus said, you don't even understand what the kingdom is. You don't understand what it's going to be like and things are going to get really rough from here. 
Well, about this time, the other disciples figured out what was going on and they were ticked off. I mean, Peter's like, hey, if anybody's right-hand guy, it's me. Rock, remember? You call me Rock. I'm the rock. I'm the man. I'm the guy. And Andrew's like, yeah, and he, I'm his brother. So we're right-hand and left-hand guys. Nobody's crowding out our deal. And Thaddeus is over here going, I have a weird name, but I could be a cool right-hand guy. I mean, I could be your wingman, Jesus. It'd be so cool. And Jesus is like, guys, time out. Hang on, hang on, hang on. You, you don't understand. Here's the deal. In Matthew chapter 20, it said, Jesus says, he called to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Underline that phrase if you don't mind. Not to be served, but to serve. Jesus encapsulated the gospel in that sentence. The point is not to be served. He came as God. He could have forced people to bow down before him. He could have had people waiting on him all the time, but he did the opposite. He came to serve. And he tried for three years to get this point across to his disciples. And finally, the last night that he was with them, the last night they were going to be together, they they were uh, gathered for dinner and, and they were reclining at the meal. Um, you probably know that in the first century when they would eat at meals, instead of eating at a big table with chairs like we do, the table would be about that high and they would lean on one elbow and they would eat with the other hand and kind of a head to foot kind of arrangement. Well, you can imagine if you are eating with someone's else, someone else's feet in your face, foot hygiene is very important, right? Especially if everyone wears flip-flops and you walk everywhere on dirty roads. It's important what's under their toenails. I mean, you want to know. This is this important information. And so Jesus notices that nobody washed their feet. And so he doesn't say a word. He gets up, he takes off his outer coat. He takes a towel, he wraps it around his waist. He grabs a basin of water and he starts washing their feet. Well, this is outrageous. I mean, not only is he God, he's their teacher, he's their leader. Foot washing was reserved for the lowest slave. It was the bottom job that you could do. And Peter says, Jesus, you can't wash my feet. This is, this is ridiculous. And Jesus says, no, Peter, here's the deal. If I wash your feet, then you should wash each other's feet. And some people took this literally and they think that we should go around washing everyone's feet. And that wasn't Jesus' point at all. What Jesus was saying is, guys, here's the central issue. Last night with you, I need to get the point across. Serve each other. Serve each other. And then the last thing Jesus did on earth, his ultimate object lesson was to be nailed to a cross and to die on that cross for you and for me as a servant. And in that, in that symbol that we look at every day, that symbol is a symbol of serving. And so Jesus said, guys, the central issue, the most powerful force in the universe is when we begin to serve one another, not just serve, but serve in my name, serve in the name of Jesus. So how can we do that? How can we experience this power? How can we tap into uh, the unstoppable force of serving? How can we serve like Jesus? Well, let me give you a couple of things about the way Jesus served. The first thing about the way Jesus served is Jesus was available. He was available for service. Jesus is walking on the road. He's on his way to the Last Supper. 
His time on earth is drawing to a close. He has important things that he needs to talk to the disciples. And as he's walking along, the verse on your outline sheet says that a couple of blind beggars called out to him. Now, if you've ever been in a third world country, it's, it's very, very sad, but you see people begging all of the time. Blind people, people that uh, have uh, uh, handicaps in life, uh, people that are extremely poor. There are people begging everywhere you go. And I'm sure it was the same for Jesus. And so as he walked, these blind beggars called out and said, Jesus, can, can you stop? Can you help us? And it says, and he stopped. Circle that on your outline sheet and he stopped. The Son of God wasn't too important. His mission wasn't too important that he couldn't stop and be interrupted. In fact, if you look at Jesus' ministry, it's basically a series of interruptions. Uh, The the blind beggars interrupt him. A lame man interrupts him. Uh, A a woman who needs to be healed interrupts him. A, A dad whose daughter has died interrupts him. In fact, His very first miracle was at a wedding where he was just hanging out with friends and his mom comes and interrupts him. Now, I got to be honest with you. I'm just going to be transparent. I hate interruptions. Anybody else hate to be interrupted at all? There's like four of us. We hate to be interrupted. I I mean, here's the deal. I'm on a mission from God and I sometimes just don't have time for people. You know what I'm saying? I mean... And I get this look in my eye and I, this glazed look and I'm, I'm marching, I'm going, I've got places to go, people to see, things to do. I don't have time for you and I just, I just don't like to be interrupted. And a verse that I really, really don't like is in Proverbs. And the verse says, never tell your neighbor to wait until tomorrow if you can help them now. Don't you hate that? Don't you hate that? Why do we hate to be interrupted? Why are we not available to serve? You know, I have two or three barriers. Let me talk to you about. The first barrier is self-centeredness. It's just being focused on me. Um, Philippians in the message says, forget yourself long enough to lend a helping hand. I love the way it puts that. I need to put that on my uh, windshield. Forget yourself. Forget yourself long enough to lend a helping hand. See, I'm too consumed by my own plans, my own agenda, my own problems to think about others. What we do is we hang a do not disturb sign around our heart. We have goals, we have plans, we have places that we need to be. We we know what our agenda is and we really don't need to be disturbed by other people. And what that really is, is it's selfishness. The opposite of that is what I saw in Nashville. When people put aside their calendar, they put aside their own needs, they just loaded up in cars, showed up in neighborhoods where they didn't know anyone, and they just dug in and helped. And the whole time we were tearing, up, tearing into that guy's house, I didn't hear anyone say, oh, I, I, I need to run. I didn't hear anyone say, boy, this is just taking too long, or it's too hot, or anything else. They were all focused on other people, on how they could serve, how they could help. It was the opposite of being self-centered. Um, a second barrier... Like second barrier to uh, being available is perfectionism. Perfectionism. Look at Ecclesiastes 11. If you wait for perfect conditions, you will never get anything done. And that, that kind of puts it in a nutshell. Let me tell you some of the excuses I hear a lot when we talk about serving. You know, I would love to serve. And boy, when we, when we get through this, then I'll be able to serve. I got news for you, gang. 
when you get through this, there's another crisis coming. Basically, life is just a series of crises. The other, the, the other one I hear is um, um, when things slow down. You know, when things slow down, then I'm going to serve. Things aren't going to slow down. They just, it turns out that the earth spins at the same speed all the time and, and things just aren't going to slow down. And then I hear, I just don't know where I fit. You know, I would serve, but I don't know where I fit. You know what servants do is servants just find needs and they start filling them, whether they fit or not. Real servants do what they can, where they can, with what they have. I was so impressed with my wife, Sherry, when we were in Nashville. If you know Sherry, she is a girly girl. I mean, she just is. She works out of a home office, and so some days she doesn't leave the house. But I will come home at the end of the day, and she'll be wearing a dress and makeup. Her hair is fixed, and she's wearing high heels. She's sitting at her desk wearing high heels. And I'm like, what is that about? And she said, well, I just have to look good for no one who is here. (laughs) That's just sheer. I love that about her. But when we were in Nashville, we went into this house and it was just nasty. And they said, we'll show you what you got, what we have to do in this house. The guy took a hammer. He put a hole in the sheetrock. He reached into the wet sheetrock. He ripped out uh, a big old chunk. He said, we keep doing that till everything's gone. Any questions? And so we just dug in and it was nasty. It was wet. The insulation was dripping. There was just water all over the floor, mud. It was nasty stuff. After about 10 or 15 minutes, I looked around for Sherry and I found her just a few feet away and she was just diving in. She had never worked in sheetrock. She had never torn anything apart like that. She was up to her elbows and her hair and just covered with it. And she was just serving and just doing it all over this house. People that they didn't know what they what to do until five minutes before, but no one was looking for a place and trying to make sure their their gifts fit where they were at. They were just serving and serving and serving. You know, every weekend at Seacoast, when you walk in, someone smiles, shakes your hands, hands you a worship guide. A lot of those people's lives are upside down. They're in the middle of turmoil, but they're just serving because there's a need. Every weekend in children's ministry, there are people... Uh, ministering to children. And if you asked them if this was really what they were wired up to do, a lot of them would say, I don't know, probably not. But I just want to serve. Every week at Seacoast, there are life group leaders who just don't have the time. There is so much going on at work and so much going on in their life. But they lead a life group anyway because they want to help their neighbors. They want to serve. They want to give. And so they lead. A real servant isn't looking for the perfect fit. A real servant is looking for the perfect need. And then a third barrier to being available for serving is materialism. It's materialism. It's a basic question of life. What's going to be the driving force of your life? Building your wealth or building God's kingdom? Are you going to be more concerned about your wallet or your treasure in heaven? Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. You know, if we really commit our lives to serving, if that becomes our chief force in life, it's seldom a lucrative career choice. But we do find the purpose of why God created us to live. So serving like Jesus means, first of all, pardon me, first of all, being available. And second, it means being grateful. It means being grateful. Jesus had a habit of thanking God in advance. In fact, on your outline sheet, There's a scripture, Jesus' best friend Lazarus dies. And Jesus goes and he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But look at his prayer. 
as, as he prays for Lazarus. Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. He thanked God in advance. The next verse says, serve the Lord with gladness. Be thankful, be glad. Service and gladness go together. How, how is that? Well, it, it depends on why we serve. Do I serve because I have to? Do I serve because it's an obligation? Or do I serve because I can? I serve because God saved me. I serve because I am amazed that God allows me to be a part of his plan, a part of history. And that produces thankfulness, gladness, being grateful. Uh, Second Timothy says, It is he who saved us, who chose us for, for his holy work, not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan. So why aren't we grateful? Well, let me give you a couple of barriers to being grateful. One is, is uh, comparing and complaining. Comparing and complaining. When I was a kid, we always did Christmas the same. On, on Christmas Eve, my family would open our presents. And then on Christmas Day, we would go over to my cousin's house and we would open more presents there and they would open more presents. So Christmas Eve, I would get so excited. I, I, I knew what I was going to get because I got one, one present I got somewhere almost every year. There'd be a big box and I'd dive into it first and I'd open it up. And sure enough, there it would be. It would be a Tonka truck, a Tonka truck. Did any of you have Tonka truck before you raise your hand? Not those plastic little baby toys they have now. No, I'm talking about the meaty metal finger maiming Tonka trucks. Any of you have those when you're a kid? Yeah. Yeah, I remember one year I opened up my Tonka truck and it's the, oh, did you guys have the big yellow dump truck? Yeah, this was a man truck, you know? I, I used to give the, the dog rides in it, involuntary rides, but I mean, we would just, it was so cool. And I, I open up my Tonka truck and I'm, Mom, it's, just, it's, it's a Tonka truck. I'm so, oh, you're the greatest mom in the world. Thank you so much. I just kind of teared up a little bit there. And then we would go the next day over to my cousin's house and they would open their presents in front of us. And I had a cousin that's almost the same age as I would. And he would open up a little box and inside the box would be like, like a bridle. And it'd be like, well, what is that? And his dad would say, well, look out the window. And he looks out the window and there's a horse. <laughs> a full size, no, a real horse, full size horse. And he says to me, and what did you get? That stupid Tonka truck. <laughs> mom doesn't even love me. She just, if you love me, mom, you got me a horse. Even though we live in a subdivision. <clears throat> Could stay in the bathtub. <clears throat> we do that, don't we? I mean, we just, we compare. I mean, we lose our gratefulness by comparing. I can't believe I, I can't believe I have to drive a, a 10-year-old car. He, he, he drives a 5-year-old car. I can't believe I have to drive a 5-year-old car. He, he gets a brand new car. Well, yeah, I got a brand new car, but it's not a Mustang. He's got a Mustang. I, yeah, I got a Mustang, but he's got a Corvette. I mean, jeez. So we're not grateful because we compare and we compare and we compare. The other thing we do is we criticize. We criticize. We criticize our leaders. When we're in life group. I mean, you know, I'm really, I'm really glad that Bob leads the life group. I mean, God bless him. He's... You know, he does the best he can, I guess. But, you know, I mean, if I was leading, we'd start on time. I mean, seriously, we'd, and like we wouldn't spend 30 minutes on Bible study. How long does that take? Seriously, I mean, how hard is it? And like the snacks, did you see them last week? It was just, what is that, chips and dip? I mean, come on. 
but uh, yeah, Bob's a great guy, I suppose, but he's just, he doesn't lead well. And we criticize. And you know what happens is when we compare and we complain and we criticize, there's no gratitude. It, it saps all the thankfulness. And, and we can't serve if we don't have a heart of gratitude. Let me tell you the key to serving. Serving is just being blown away by what God has done in our lives. To wake up and go, God, I cannot believe you let me live here. God, I can't believe the provision in my life. You have given me a home. You've given me, a, I have transportation. I mean, wow. I, there's food in my pantry, God, and two-thirds of the world has nothing. I am blown away. Thank you so much. That's how we can serve. As we realize that we have more than enough and we can share with others. We can serve other, other people. Another barrier to, uh, to gratitude is wrong motives. Jesus said in uh, Matthew chapter 6, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be, uh, to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You know, we have to ask ourselves a lot, why are we serving? In fact, right now, just think of an area of service in your life. Not, not something you're paid for, but something you do on a regular basis without getting paid. And why do you do it? Maybe it's a sense of obligation. Maybe deep down inside, maybe you're kind of hoping you'll get a pat on the back. Maybe it's for approval from some people around you. I mean, those are natural things. There's, those, aren't, those aren't things that, that, that don't come naturally. But if that's our motive for serving, then there's not going to be this gratitude and our serving is going to be very limited. Here's how you can test your motive. How often do you think things like this? You know, I bet nobody even notices what I'm doing. You know, nobody ever recognizes me. You know, I'm not doing it for the pats on the back, but it sure would be nice if once in a while someone would just say, hey, good job. And again, that's a natural feeling. But the more we have those feelings, the more we know that we are serving for external reasons and we're not going to have this attitude of gratitude. Let me tell you where serving comes from. It's when we, um, when we recognize that there's an audience of one. When I say, I'm not serving even for the people that I'm serving. I'm not serving for the people around me. I'm not trying to get approval or applause or anything else. I'm serving for God. And if God is happy with what I'm doing, what an awesome experience that is. See, then recognition, approval, strokes from other people become irrelevant. And all we're concerned about is what does God think? And then the final thing, serving like Jesus. It means being available. It means being grateful. It means being faithful, being faithful. Being faithful means not giving up. When you're discouraged, when you're tired, when you're criticized, when you don't have the time, you serve anyway. 1 Corinthians says, the one thing required of servants is what? It's talent? No. It's popularity? No. It's being gifted? No. Paul says the one thing, the only thing required to be a great servant is to be faithful. And what does it mean to be faithful? It means to show up, to show up again and again and again and again. About two years ago, uh, my men's group decided that they wanted to be a part of the Adopt-A-Block program over at the Dream Center in North Charleston. And so we were excited about it. Uh, we talked to the leaders over there. They gave us a block, and we were excited about our block. And so we went the first month, and, and we went and we started knocking on doors. And we just wanted to tell people we were there, tell them how excited we were to 
be a part of this block to pray for them, see if we could help in any way. And so we're knocking on doors and nobody answers. And we knock on another door and nobody answers. And we knock on another door and we notice the shades shut. And like we had almost no doors open and a few that did open, they didn't want to talk to us and they closed. And so we went back the next month and we knocked on doors and same reaction. But we went back the third month and we knocked on doors and guess what? The same thing happened. Yeah, for like six months and then a year. And little by little, we would see a little more and a little more and we just got discouraged. But we just kind of hung together and kind of challenged each other and we continued to just to say, dude, you better be there. You know, I'm gonna be there. I don't like it. You don't like it. So let's not like it together. And we just kept going back for a year. We went back. 18 months we went back. We've been doing the same block for two years. And we went this weekend. And, and as we went around, little by little by little, we've begun to see just hearts open, doors open. We knock on a door and the family says, oh man, I'm glad to see you. Come on in. And they just spilled out for us all that was going on in their lives. And uh, someone had been shot and someone had been taken off life support and it just uh, unbelievable needs. And, and they invited us to pray with them. We, we held hands and prayed. And we went to another neighbor and she opened up the door and she was grinning from ear to ear. She said, guess what? I got that full-time job that I wanted. They hired me on full-time. We're like, yes, that's awesome. And for two years, we've been going back and back and back and back. And we're beginning to see God open up doors and we're beginning to see things happen. But it only happens when you're faithful. See, here's what our pattern is, is we serve for a little while and then we move on. We serve here and then we serve here and then we serve here. Thanksgiving comes. Oh man, yeah, we're taking, we're taking food. We're going we're gonna to rock their socks. This will be awesome. We go and we do it. And then we come back, we check off the Thanksgiving list or the Christmas list. You know, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not an unstoppable force of serving. Unstoppable servants come back again and again and again. They're faithful. Let me tell you about some faithful servants at Seacoast. Janice Eisman at the Columbia campus leads a team that prepares the worship guides every weekend. Most people don't even know she serves, but she is faithful regardless of major health challenges she is facing in her life. Sean Jones and his family have worked tirelessly at the Asheville campus, setting up every weekend for three years. They, they have been willing to do anything that needs to be done and never expect anything in return. Cliff Cannon serves as a service coordinator for the weekend services at the Mount Pleasant campus. He comes in an hour before the service starts and makes sure that each team has everything they need for the weekend. He also donates countless hours using his gifts of craftsmanship. Jen Hutchison is a incredible volunteer in Kids Coast and Greenville. Kids connect with Jim. He loves leading them in a relationship with Christ. Andy Gill is an amazing servant. Andy has been leading our uh, youth ministry at our James Island campus for over a year now while serving full-time in the Air Force. Rhonda Davis leads an eighth and ninth grade girls small group at the Somerville campus. She also volunteers in Nitro every other weekend, volunteers at Groundswell every week, opens her house to the youth for fun and parties, brings kids to church who do not have a ride, and she mentors mentors a high school girl. Rick Dangerfield arrives at the North Charleston campus before 7.30 every Sunday morning. He puts out the parking cones and he gets the coffee started. 
Rick is the go-to guy. When the lights are out, it's too hot, it's too cold, the alarm is going off, the tires are low on the Dream Center bus, or there's a strange smell coming from the bathrooms. (laughs) Megan Blackburn is a full-time special needs teacher from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., but her real passion is leading a team that carries out all of the Irmo campus's local missions projects, such as Car Care Day, Health Care Day, Finley Park Homeless Ministry, Back to School Bash, and the annual Christmas Care Project. Jimmy and Cindy Blackman at the West Campus have a huge heart for outreach, and it is evident in everything that they do. They lead monthly services at Crisis Ministries Homeless Shelter, preparing and serving a hot meal, leading Bible studies, and bringing uh, people to church who might not be able to attend otherwise, as well as taking them on excursions to the beach and to the thorn. And that's just a few. There are dozens, there are hundreds of stories like that. People at Seacoast who just serve. They serve here at church. They serve in their community. They serve in missions projects all around the world. And they don't do it to get anything for themselves. They do it out of of a heart of gratefulness. Hebrews says, He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your lives to him by caring for other Christians. As we finish, I want to ask you a couple questions. And actually heard these questions this week. I was listening to a a, a ministry webinar and these questions struck deep with me. Why do you have what you have? Why has God let you live where you live? Why do you have a car? Why do you have a house? Why do you have resources that most of the rest of the world, if they had 10% of what you have, they would be blown away? Why do you think that is? Is it because God just loves you so much more than other people? Because you're just, you're just special. You're just, you're just more important than other people are. Is it because God hopes you will use all of those resources on you and your family and your little circle and just make sure that that little knot is taken care of? Or perhaps God has given us resources above and beyond what we could ask or imagine because he wants us to serve those around us. Because he knows that when 10 and 20 and 30 of us band together around a passion and begin to serve people as a team, that amazing things happen. Can you imagine if all of Seacoast came together? Can you imagine if here at the Mount Pleasant campus and at the Manning campus, the Columbia campus, if 10,000 people got up off the bench, got into the game and said, I'm here to serve. How can I help? It would be unstoppable. It would be unstoppable. Let's pray. Lord, we've seen what happens. We've seen what happens when that kind of thing happens in people's hearts. 2,000 years ago, 11 men watched you die on a cross, saw you come back to life and said, that's it. We're laying down our lives for this cause. We will serve in the name of Jesus for the rest of our lives. Lord, they started a revolution that changed the world. And they did it by serving. Lord, down through history, Christians 
have done amazing things by serving the lost and the least, by serving those who were hurting around them. Lord, you spent your entire ministry among prostitutes, among thieves, among criminals. And Lord, you didn't condemn them, you didn't judge them, you didn't preach at them. You served them, you healed them, you cared for them, you loved them. What if we did that, Lord? Lord, what if we found needs and just didn't worry about if we were talented enough or had enough time? Lord, we just said, I'm here, how can I help? Lord, I pray that you will drive deep in my heart and in each of our hearts this undeniable force of serving, Lord. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.